Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Today is June 5th, 2019. And we had our first service here as a public church on June 3rd, 2001. So we just passed our 18th anniversary as a public church. Oh. (laughs) Really? A smattering of applause. Look, either do it or don't. Okay? (laughs) So, of course, whenever we have these kinds of anniversaries, it's a good time for a bit of pause and reflection because I can't help myself. Uh, I have to consider what we're doing, how we're doing it, and whether we need to improve anything, whether we need to change anything, whether we need to be aware of something that's lacking within us. And so I try to take regular stock of who we are and what we do. Well, this past week, I was in a conversation in which I was asked a really poignant question. The question was, is the church any longer effective? And I can't speak for the church at large. There are a couple of churches right up the road. There's a Methodist church. There's the big mega church. There's churches up that way. I can't speak for them. I don't know how they do what they do. Oh, let's be honest. I don't know why they do what they do. The church world, by and large, is a mass of confusion and sub-biblical traditions. So the church is kind of a mess out there. And I can't give you an answer for them. I can only answer for GCA as a body because that's my responsibility. That's what God has decided I was going to uh, give an answer for and be under shepherd too. And from the beginning, anybody who's been with us from the beginning, like Jeff, will testify that I didn't want this job. The job comes with a lot of responsibilities that a person like me doesn't necessarily want. I've always been very good growing up as a musician. I was always good at shirking responsibility. I was always good at doing what I wanted to do in my life and not walking along the dictates of responsibilities. And so this church through the years has put a lot of obligations, responsibilities, requirements on me, and, uh, and I quit. No, that's not where I was going. No, 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 that, that was a joke. But it's caused me to look back and reflect because that, that question... Is the church still effective? I just really wanted to think that through. Is the church effective? Now, yes, we're going to, hopefully, we're going to introduce the book of Proverbs tonight. And we will get into at least the first chapter after the introduction to the book of Proverbs. But I did want to take a few minutes tonight. And if you'll allow us, Lincoln, we're going to have a little bit of family talk. Because... What about GCA? Is GCA 
effective? That question has been ringing through my head the last few days. I think the only way to answer that question has to do with what you expect or what you think church is supposed to be. Through the years, we have had people who have criticized GCA for how we do what we do, and we're either not liturgical enough for some people. I've had critics who said we use humor too much, and they said that's not reverent, you know, that we need to be more reverent. And so in thinking about what is it that we want, what is our goal, what is our purpose, why are we here, why are we doing what we do, it would be easy for us to fall into just rote activity. What I mean by that is we just go to church because, well, we go to church. We're we're church-going people. And so we get up every Sunday and Wednesday, and we just go to church. And then we sing some songs, and then we say some prayers, Uh, maybe sometimes we stand in a circle and say prayers and then the ball guy gets up and talks for an hour and we say hi how you doing to a few people and then we go home because that's what you do because that's church I hope that we haven't fallen into that but it is easy when you have a schedule the way we do we don't actually have a liturgy that we follow, but we do have a sort of liturgical form. Sundays, we do the same basic thing. You can count on a time of prayer. You can count on some singing and some music. You can count on Micah standing up here taking prayer requests. You can count on the ball guy talking for an hour. You can count on that stuff, and I don't ever want that stuff to become uh, mundane. I don't ever want it to become the standard, oh, yeah, we just do that again. So is the church effective. If it falls into mundanity, then no, it's not effective because then people are coming here and just becoming bored. If your standard is, well, the church needs to create perfect saints who don't fall, who who don't sin, and that a church needs to be judged on its effectiveness based on whether people reach a point of absolute holiness, well, then GCA has failed miserably. I'm talking to you, Jeff. Um, No, no, no. But, you know, we've been doing this for 18 years, and there are people who have been with us for many, many years. Is there anybody willing to say, that did it for me. I'm perfected. I'm ready to go. I'm good. 18 years ago, as we became a public church, I said, if you're righteous and holy, if your holiness is beyond repute, don't come here because I've got nothing for you. The same way that Jesus said, well, men don't seek a physician. But you've heard me say it time and time again through the years. I've said, send me every sinner in town because I get an answer for you. I got something I can tell you. As a consequence of saying, send me all the sinners, guess what I ended up with? Here we are. I ended up with a congregation of sinners. And then a couple of weeks ago, of course, we were looking at Romans 7, and we were seeing that even Paul talked about the fact that being in the flesh, we're going to talk about it again this Sunday as we go into Romans 8, being in the flesh sets up a war between the flesh and the spirit. And what I look for from people isn't perfection. 
but I look to see, are you at least in the battle? Are you at least in the fight? Because since Paul says that the flesh and the spirit are at enmity with each other, so that they're warring with each other, then that should be the state of a Christian. He should be in that war between his flesh and the Holy Spirit that inhabits him. So if you're expecting a level of perfection, then you'd have to say, no, GCA is not effective. Years ago, I had someone tell me that the reason they did not come to church anymore, and this is as close to a quote as as I can quote it, he said, the reason I don't come to church anymore is because church is full of hypocrites. Yeah? Yeah, I, I would agree. But you know, this past Sunday, I preached a little piece out of Galatians 2. Let me read the part of Galatians 2 just before what I read this past Sunday, because there was a time in Galatia when Peter apparently came to visit, and he and Paul had a bit of a dissension between them, two of the strongest preachers of grace on the planet, people who had seen miracles both at the hand of Christ and God continuing the work of Christian ministry. They had both seen miracles of healing. They had both seen remarkable things. Peter still walked on more water than I ever have. And yet, the two of them in a room in what inarguably is a church, nevertheless, ended up having a contention between them. And this is the way that Paul described it. Starting in chapter 2, verse 11 of the book of Galatians, When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's a kataganosko, I believe. Which means that there was something discerned about Peter that needed to be corrected. It has that kata intensifier on the front of it. So it's not just knowledge of someone, it's a negative knowledge of someone. A holding down of someone because of what you know about them. Well, that's the state that Peter stood in. And now he describes why. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, which would have been the Jerusalem contingent of the church that was keeping the law and following after Christ, who would have said, well, we're Jews and we're Jewish believers and therefore we have nothing to do with Gentiles. Before those certain from James had come, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles there in Galatia. And why not? He was on a housetop one day when a tablecloth comes down from heaven. He got the direct revelation from God. Don't call unclean what I call clean. And the next thing he knows, he's invited into the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. He preaches to the whole household. The Holy Spirit comes. People are converted. And Peter is introduced to the notion that Gentiles, too, could come to faith, would be saved by the Jewish Messiah and by God, Yahweh. So, of course, this is still a tender subject for Peter. But when nobody else is around from Jerusalem, when none of the other law-keeping Jews are around him, you know, he's going to hang out with the Gentiles. 
and act like he's one of the Gentiles and eat with the Gentiles. Because after all, that's what God told him to do. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. So he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they, the ones from Jerusalem, came, he began to withdraw and hold himself separate from them or aloof from them because he was fearing the party of the circumcision, the ones who came from Jerusalem. And the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. And the result was that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So even the Bible says that there's occasionally going to be hypocritical stuff in the church. You'll notice Paul does not say, and at that point, they ceased to be a church. This is the same Paul who wrote two letters to the Corinthians talking about everything that was wrong with them. And there was terrible stuff wrong with them. But Paul never said, that's it, you're not a church. Instead, what he admitted was, you got to get cleaned up. You name the name of Christ. You can't keep acting like this. So... For the people who say, I can't go to church because there's hypocrites in the church, the Bible even says that. And it was Peter who had that astounding revelation. Peter, who stood up on the day of Pentecost as he spoke, as the Holy Spirit fell on the 3,000 people there. There were people from all these different regions, all these different tongues who heard in their own language an astounding miracle that it was Peter that got to stand up on the day of Pentecost. And you know what? I take great heart and great comfort in this story from the book of Galatians to find out that even Peter, for the magnificence of the revelation that he had, that he walked and talked with Jesus, that he saw the miracles that Jesus did, and then he himself did miracles. Peter and John healed a layman. I mean, come on. This is Peter we're talking about. And he goofed up. And he had to be withstood by Paul. That gives somebody like me great comfort. Because then I know when I goof up, and I do, on a regular basis, nobody check with my wife. I goof up on a regular basis. But you know what? I'm still in the church. So then, is the church effective? If your expectation of what the church is, is that the church is a sort of hospital, that the church sometimes is triage, that the church is a place where hurt, broken, wounded people can come and we can tell them there's a balm in Gilead. If the purpose of the church is, as Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation, that we are calling men and women to be reconciled to their God, to their maker. If the purpose of the church is to take broken, wounded people, sinful people, people who can't even stand themselves anymore, people who come here looking for some kind of hope, and we tell them there is hope because Jesus did it all. All the stuff you can't do, Jesus did for you out of astounding love. If that's the purpose of the church, is to bind up the brokenhearted. If the purpose of the church is to tell people 
run to Christ. Well, then let's ask the question, is GCA effective? Now I'd have to say yes. For 18 years, we've been doing nothing but pounding the Bible, pounding the word of God. We don't say, come to us, come to our congregation, come to our way of doing things. Come, We say, come to Christ. Run to Christ. He's the only answer you have. We point out their incapability. We look at wounded people and we say, yeah, that's a horrible wound. And you know what? That's what you deserve. But I have a cure. And the cure is Christ. Run to Christ. The answer is not me. The answer is not come to Conrad. The answer is not come be part of the way we do things. The answer is come to Christ. And week in, week out, almost on a daily basis, I get notices from people out there on the internet and some people here locally and they say, I come to your website all the time because I need to hear the balanced gospel and that's what you present. So is the church effective? I got to say, yeah. I would say GCA is doing pretty good after 18 years. And that's a compliment not to me, but that's a compliment to you all because you have supported and encouraged and kept this thing going now for 18 years. And over those 18 years, we have seen several churches here in Smyrna rise up. We're right up the street from the middle school here. I can't even count how many little churches started at the middle school that don't exist anymore. For whatever reason, they fell of their own weight or people just stopped coming or they ran out of money or whatever it is that happened to them. But 18 years ago, God granted us this building. And then he allowed us very quickly to become debt-free. And then he allowed that we could stand here week in, week out, in hopefully a non-rote fashion and call people to Christ. And say, that's your answer. And tell hurting people, tell broken people, tell people that are just sick to death of their own sin that there is an answer. Hope. (laughs) How often does Paul talk about hope? Faith and hope. So, I hope you agree. Hope. I hope the folks on the internet agree that 18 years later... Is the church effective? Speaking for us collectively, I'd have to say, thank God, the answer right now is, yeah, we're doing what we're called to do. And what we're called to do is tell sinners, run to Christ. As long as Christ keeps calling his people, I think it would always be okay. I agree. And, you know, that's why we keep saying all we do is feed sheep food. And that sheep food attracts sheep. People who are called by God are not offended by God's word. Mm -hmm. People called by God love sheep food. And that's also the way that we run off the goats. Because goats don't like a steady diet of sheep food. And that's the process that we used for 
18 years, and it's worked. And I'm happy to say, proud to say, see, I was ready to move on to Proverbs, and then you triggered my brain again. I'm happy and proud to be able to say, for 18 years, I have told you all, don't tithe. The Mother's Day message up the road. You can go look at it online. The Mother's Day message up the road was, oh, and $748 out of all the moms in the room. I mean, it was crazy talk. All these years, 18 years, the way we've been debt-free, the way we've survived month by month, we've never really had a month where we went, oh, that's it, we're out of money. I've never had to stuff your mailboxes. I've never had to write desperate emails saying, that's it, we're out of money, help us out. And we don't even take up offerings. We have a button you can click on our website if you want to give to GCA through PayPal. And many of our internet listeners have taken advantage of that, even though I've never told them that they need to give to us. But they do, and I'm grateful for it. It's how we keep going. It's how we support the orphanage in India. It's how we do the things that we do. And we just have a box on the wall over there. And when was the last time I said to any of you, you better get over there and put some money in that box? I've just never done it. And so I feel really, really fortunate after 18 years that you all have been kind enough and gracious enough and giving enough that I've never had to do that. I've never had to fleece the sheep. I've never had to beat you over the head and say, now give, doggone it. Instead, I have the freedom to just keep pounding on the Bible and telling people week in, week out, come to Christ and you can have peace with God. And Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And it will make your life better not only here and now, even though you go through struggles and trials here in life, you will ultimately find joy in the knowledge that God is not angry at you and that God has promised you an eternity since before the foundation of the world. News doesn't get better than that. And I get to tell people that Here in the room and via the internet, I get to tell people that because you all let me. And I appreciate that you do that. Okay, now turn to Proverbs. All right, so the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is mostly just sort of short, pithy statements. The date when it was completed, we don't really know. Most of the Proverbs, certainly in the early going in the book, were written by Solomon. And in fact, one of the early Hebrew titles that was given to the book is the Mishli Shlomo, which is the Proverbs of Solomon. And you're going to see that title in some of the superscripts as we're going through it. These are Proverbs that come from Solomon, but then after Solomon died... They were then assembled by later kings and uh, even added to by later wise men and kings. And then ultimately we end up with the book of the collection of Proverbs that we have here. For instance, if you were to look at 1 Kings chapter 4, starting around verse 29, it's describing Solomon. And it says, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth, wideness of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. 
for he was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mehol. If anybody knows who they are and want to offer up a background and biography on them, I'm willing to listen. Yeah, they were second place. <laughs> they were second place, so what does it matter? And his fame, Solomon's fame, was known in all the surrounding nations. And by the way, you're not reverent. That was too much humor. <laughs> Verse 32 then tells us, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. Now, the word songs there doesn't mean catchy little ditties. It was not, hey, I'm king, how you doing? It wasn't songs the way we think of songs. It means like the Song of Solomon. It's a recitation. It can be an extended poem, that kind of thing. But he had 1,005 of those, and we only have the Song of Solomon in the Bible. He spoke about trees. He talked about the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop tree that grows on the wall. He spoke about animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all peoples all around to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. So that what, what that tells you is that the kings who were expecting and collecting wisdom would come and hear the things that Solomon would say. And as he spoke these proverbial statements and would share his wisdom, they would keep track of it. They would write it down. That's why they were able to assemble it through the course of the years and then give us this collection. Now, because this is sort of a collection of collections, because it's a collection of different Solomonic poetry and short pithy phrases, and then other kings as well, the book is not just a collection of Solomon, it's a collection of collections. And as a consequence, it follows a wide variety of topics. It's very hard to find the single theme that runs through all of it outside of this. You're going to see several times in this book that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So if you have to assign a theme to this book, the theme is be smart, be wise, reverence God. And if you do not reverence God, anything else you do is just foolish because you don't know anything because you don't reverence God. The book is sort of an anthology that's made up of discrete units. And uh, here I'll break them down for you for a moment. And I'm breaking them down according to some of the superscriptions that are in there. Proverbs chapter 1 to chapter 9, we're told these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. From Proverbs chapter 10 until chapter 22, verse 16, those are just referred to as the Proverbs of Solomon. The reason that they have two different titles, Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, and a separate Proverbs of Solomon, is because they were two different collections done at different times and then assembled together. Another one from Proverbs chapter twenty-two, seventeen until 24, 22 is just called the sayings of the wise. And it's just going to be statements, and some of them aren't even related to what went before. 
and you know that I just pound away at context, 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 context. I'm always telling you, pay attention to context. Meaning is determined by context. Okay, all those context rules, they're all off the table for Proverbs because sometimes you'll be reading along and say, oh, I get that. And then a completely other idea will come up and you're not given a clue from the previous context. So sometimes you have to take each of these phrases for themselves and allow them to speak. After the sayings of the wise from Proverbs 25 to Proverbs 29, we're going to see a superscription that says, these are the other Proverbs of Solomon that the officials of King Hezekiah of Judah copied. So now we know that all the way out to the time of Hezekiah, they were still collecting the sayings of Solomon, people who had heard the sayings of Solomon and would carry them around like life lessons. At some point, Hezekiah started collecting these things and putting them into a sort of compendium. And so that also appears in the book of Proverbs. And then starting at Proverbs 30, we get the words of Agur. It's not even Solomon anymore. It's another wise man. Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 9, are the words of King Lemuel of Massah, which his mother taught him. Which means by the time we get to the end of this book, we're going to hear from King Lemuel's mom. And we're just going to hear some proverbs that he apparently learned from his mother that were then collected and added to the book. And then Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, you know, is the ideal wise woman, sometimes called the, the woman of substance, the ultimate woman, that kind of thing. So that's a general breakdown of the book. And so I think you can see, even just from that titling, that we're going to get to a wide variety of subjects in this book. Roughly half of the book is just made up of sayings, like I just said, just these types of short proverbial sayings. And the other half is made up of longer sort of poetic units, where you can gather the meaning a little more contextually because you've got a poem to work with. But then as you're going along, you're going to see a lot of instructions that are formulated like advice that's given from a father or given from a teacher to younger people or to students. And so the book has a real instructional value to it. Also in this book, you're going to see Wisdom and foolishness personified. What I mean is they're actually going to be talked about like they're people. And then Solomon is going to put them into situations, almost like little stage plays. And he's going to say, and then wisdom did this, but foolishness does this. And so that's another literary tool that Solomon is using to pass on the knowledge that he has, the wisdom that he has. And along the way, we're also going to see occasional satire. You know I'm enjoying that. <laughs> and some of the book is even, uh, I would say, even sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, kind of shrewd. You know, there's some stuff that's said in here that's you know, the elbow in the ribs. Get it? You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, the overwhelming, the, 
the primary theme then that combines all of these and that gives it its place in the Bible, the reason that this book of wisdom literature, which so much of it is just practical knowledge. You know, like if your mother ever said to you, don't touch that, it's hot. Okay, that's just practical knowledge. And so there's a lot of practical knowledge in the book of Proverbs, but the reason that it is canonical, the reason that it is included in the Bible, the reason that the Jews decided to include it in their Bible is that it does have this overarching theme of be wise, be smart, use your head, and the only way to do that is to start with fear of God. So start with fear of God. That's the overwhelming premise of the whole thing. And then because you're wise in that you fear God, live out your life according to that wisdom. So sometimes the knowledge is practical. Sometimes it's moral. Sometimes it's just how to live your life in a way that brings about the least resistance. And that is all found in these Proverbs. So I look forward to going through it all with you all because I think it's going to inspire not only lots of thought, but interesting interpretation because some of the phrases you kind of go, okay, Solomon, that was a weird one. (laughs) Okay, what what exactly are we talking about now? And so we'll see what, what we all collectively interpret from Solomon. Let's start at the Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. Most of it is very instructional, and it won't take a whole lot of explaining to get through this chapter. And by the time we're done here, it will be time to call in a night anyway. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. He starts right out by telling you the purpose of these Proverbs. To know wisdom, so that you understand how to conduct your life in a wise way, and instruction, which is the practical end of it. The practical end of it is here are the things that you need to do to just be smart. Don't be a fool. Don't be dumb. So to know wisdom and to know instruction and to discern the sayings of understanding which is interesting because that's Solomon's way of saying, now some of this that I'm going to say to you is almost going to be like a parable. And you're going to have to sort out the meaning of the parable in order to understand the wisdom that's being conveyed to you. So much so that if you skip forward for just a moment to verse 6, he also says that it's to understand a proverb and a figure, a type He's not always going to say exactly what he means. Sometimes he's going to say things in a typified way. And then he says, the words of the wise. Okay, very good. We want to hear from the wise. We want to know what the wise are going to say to us. I hope they say it clearly. I hope they say everything very precisely because they're very wise. And Solomon says, and the riddles of the wise. Why do the wise need to speak in riddles? Why don't they just tell us what they're thinking? But Solomon is warning us ahead of time. You're going to hear parables. You're going to hear riddles. You're going to hear figurative speech. But if you can understand it, it leads to your wisdom. 
So I think the premise he's working off of is, if you're wise, you're going to get it. If you're wise, you're going to understand it. And if you don't understand what I've told you, this is me speaking for Solomon now, and if you don't understand what I'm telling you, it's because you're too foolish to understand the riddles I put in front of you. You don't get the parables that I've put in front of you. And that would be an indication that you're not wise. So the reason is to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding. So he's going to give you the sayings of understanding. He's going to say things that require understanding and things that are indicative of his wisdom, but you also have to discern it. He's not just going to give it to you on a plate. You have to think it through. To receive instruction in wise behavior. That's where I said some of it's just practical. He's going to say, this is the way you would live if you're smart. If you're following after God. If you're truly wise. If you understand what the beginning of wisdom is, you're going to conduct your life in a way that is commensurate with the wisdom that God has given you. Does that sound like what I said on Sunday? Because it's the same idea. Old Testament, New Testament, it just keeps being said, which is if you fear God, if you love God, if you have some wisdom toward God, you're going to live like it. To receive instruction in wise behavior and to receive instruction in righteousness and justice and equity. Now remember who's writing this. He has already identified himself as the son of David, the king of Israel. So when he says that he's going to instruct us in righteousness, yes, because he is the king who is supposed to be leading Israel in following the law of Moses. And so that is the way that they are supposed to act as a righteous nation. So part of what he's doing is instructing them in how to be righteous. But then also in justice, because so much of the law has to do with doing what is right and fair. Things like you don't move your neighbor's border stones. If you did, that's cheating. That's not fair. That's not equity. And so much of what he has to do as a king is judge between people who have a suit against each other. And so he's saying it takes wisdom in order to know what justice is. And if you read what I've said, you'll know what justice is as well. So these are instructions in righteousness, in justice, and in fairness, in equity. To give prudence to the naive. In other words... If you don't know much, pay attention. Solomon says, I know a bunch of stuff. That's why we went and read from 1 Kings. The breadth of his knowledge, it says. The wideness of his knowledge. He understood so many things that now he's saying, if you don't understand, if you don't have knowledge, I'm willing to share my knowledge with you. And you'll go from naive to being prudent, to being wise in your decision making. Not just being random in the way you conduct your life, but being prudent, being well thought out in the things that you do. And to give the youth knowledge and discretion. So knowledge, okay, to tell you stuff so that you can collect knowledge, but just knowledge in and of itself is not wisdom. It just means that you know some stuff. 
You might know how to recognize a wall when you see one. But that doesn't mean that you're wise. It just means that you can recognize one when you see one. Wisdom would be knowing how to build that wall. Wisdom would be knowing whether that wall is helpful or not. Knowing how it affects people around you. You know, that, that's all the wisdom part of it. So he's saying part of what I'm trying to do is to teach youth Knowledge, but not just knowledge, discretion. And discretion, again, has to do with that whole idea of justice, equity, fairness, being able to determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what shouldn't be done. That takes discretion. A wise man, then, will hear and increase his learning. So if you listen to these Proverbs... If you learn from these Proverbs, according to Solomon, that is a demonstration that you're wise. Because if you're not wise, you're not going to understand. If you don't understand, that's proof positive, you're not wise. That puts you in the category of fool. So listen, pay attention, learn something, increase your learning, because a wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding... Now he's going to go to the other group. A person who has comprehension, a person who has understanding, is going to acquire wise counsel. A person who does have the wisdom to follow after God, the wisdom to collect information and be prudent and know what to do about it, they're never at the point where they are complete, according to Solomon. Even if that person listens to what he's being taught, then he's going to acquire what it is to be wise and to have good counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, because verse 7, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. So right there at the very front of this book, the very first teaching that we're actually given, he says, here's the purpose of the book, The purpose of the book is so that you can receive instruction and you can work on your behavior and your righteousness, your justice, your equities, that you grow in prudence, you have knowledge and discretion, you have understanding, it increases your learning. All of that is why. Now let's start with lesson one. And the beginning of lesson one is fear God. That's where it all starts. I would argue that's also where it all ends. It all makes a huge sweeping circle around to Fear God, because let's be honest, if you do not fear and reverence God, the whole rest of whatever you collect in this lifetime, in terms of knowledge or in terms of ability to get by in this world and in this society, even if you can walk through this present evil age doing nothing but making friends and looking good, if you don't fear God, in the end, it doesn't go well for you, and that means you weren't smart. That means you were not conducting wisdom. You were looking great and being a fool. And I think we've all experienced great-looking fools before. We won't name names. But the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of knowledge. Start there. And then by contrast, remember as we were reading through Ecclesiastes, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, again, we were seeing this poetic figure where I said in so much of Jewish poetry, it has to do with saying the same thing two opposite ways. 
so that you understand the primary point from the positive and the negative. That's what Solomon's doing here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so wise people fear the Lord, but fools despise wisdom and despise instruction. You can figure out pretty quickly whether somebody has a teachable spirit. Because you'll say, look, the Bible says this. This is the instruction that has come to you straight from Jesus. This is, and they will resist it and go their own way. And pretty soon they build up that wall of resistance where they don't hear it, where they can't be changed, where they won't react to it. And you end up saying, well, he's unteachable. I think I told you the story many years ago, but I'm going to tell you again anyway. Why? Because I can. I have the microphone. The, um, there was a girl years ago who was arguing with me from an Arminian standpoint. And so I, I opened Ephesians 1 and read it to her. And that's all I did was read it. I, I didn't comment at all, if any of you can believe that. And... And I just read it, and I said to her, do you believe that? I mean, after all, it is the very word of God. And you say you're a Christian. Do you believe this that the Bible is saying? And she said to me, well, not the way you read it. <laughs> this is the, the word of God right there. There it is. Okay, well, that is a good example of somebody who just does not have teachability. Solomon says, somebody who despises instruction, number one, they're too caught up in their own ego and their own self-sufficiency and thinking that they're fine, they're righteous, they're good, they don't need us, they don't need the Bible, they don't need something some guy wrote thousands of years ago telling them what to do. So they despise any kind of instruction, he says, but they, in so doing, despise wisdom. And that's what makes them fools, because they can't be taught. So hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Can I get a witness from the mothers in the room? I like the balance there. Remember what your father said, but don't forsake your mother's teaching. You know why? Because a good mom has a whole lot of wisdom to convey. And as we saw later in the book, we're going to be hearing Proverbs that came right from a king's mother. So don't forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, that teaching from your father and from your mother is like a graceful wreath on your head. Okay, what is Solomon saying? If you walk down the street and you have a beautiful wreath on your head, That's a crown. That's a reward. You've done something special. You've won a a game of competition or you've done something where you have been singled out and you're wearing that wreath on your head to show everybody that you've been singled out by whatever you've accomplished. And he says, if you pay attention to your father and mother, if you pay attention to the wisdom of wise people as they pass it down to you, you will wear that through the rest of your life like a reward, like a wreath that's been placed on your head, a beautiful and a graceful wreath set on your head. It'll be like an ornament around your neck, like some great necklace that you get to wear. My son, 
If sinners entice you, do not consent. Boy, does that sound very New Testament. That would fit with everything we just said this past Sunday. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait. In other words, let us hide ourselves by the roadside. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us wait to kill somebody. Let us ambush somebody. Let us ambush the innocent without a cause. Let's enrich ourselves by falling on other people and killing them and taking their stuff. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, like the grave. Let us just go out and kill. Let us swallow them alive to Sheol, even whole as those who go down into the pit. And we shall find all kinds of precious wealth. So let's go lay in wait, which means that it's premeditated. And let's go do damage to other people to make ourselves rich. And if people say to you, let's do that, Solomon's saying, don't don't go in with them. Damaging other people to make yourself wealthy, that's a bad deal. And we shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with the spoil that we've taken from these people. So throw in your lot with us. And then we'll have one purse. In other words, we'll divide it all up equally. We'll all take part in this. And then we'll divide up the purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil. And they hasten to shed blood. They hasten to go damage other people. And indeed, it's useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. What? (laughs) You were doing fine. You were giving us instruction, very clear, very precise. Don't lie in wait. Don't shed blood. Don't go in with other people to share the spoils. Don't, Don't do that. And then suddenly he says... And it's useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. Now, you can read commentary after commentary about that. And there's really two basic ways that people seem to fall on that particular little proverb, which is either saying it's useless to be laying in wait for somebody coming. You have to go lay in wait. You can't just be out there in the street like, hey, come on, we're going to kill you, (laughs) that you have to hide in order to do the damage that you're going to do because if you put a net out if you put a trap out to catch a bird and the bird sees it the bird's not going in it it's going to scare the bird off so you don't want to scare the person off so you need to hide and that hiding is proof positive that you know what you're doing is wrong okay that's one way it can be read the other way is speaking to the person who is collecting knowledge, who is being wise in what they're doing, he's saying that act of what you're thinking about doing is pointless, is useless. A bird knows enough not to get trapped in a net, and righteous people know enough not to get trapped into going to commit those sins with other people. So if other people say to you, come with us, join us, let's go commit these horrible things, You should be like the bird with that net. You should know that's a snare. That's a trap. Don't get in it. 
So, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird, but they, the evil ones, lay in wait for their own blood, and they ambush their own lives. In other words, don't throw in your lot with them, because ultimately what they're doing is destroying themselves. Ultimately, though, they're laying in wait and laying a trap for other people. Ultimately, what they're doing is laying a trap for their own lives. Why? Because God is just. God who sees everything. God who knows everything. If they had the fear of the Lord, they would know that God is everywhere watching all of these things. And they would recognize that what they're doing in laying in wait and hurting people is that they're begging God to judge them. So even though they're destroying other people's lives, even though they're shedding innocent blood, what they're really doing is shedding their own blood and destroying their own lives. Therefore, don't throw in with them. But they lay in wait for their own blood. And they ambush their own lives. And so are the ways of everyone who makes gain, who collects things through violence. It takes away the life of the very people who end up possessing the stuff they went to gain. So even though they're gaining stuff, even though they can say, look how rich I've made myself, even though they can say, look, I got a bigger house and a better car and I got all this stuff, but I got it all through violence, through hurting other people, through damaging other people. He says, ultimately, even though they've done all that, it's going to be to their hurt, to their destruction. So don't do it. So there's kind of lesson number one of the teacher talking to the student or of the father talking to the son, it starts with fear God. Start there. Fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. Listen to your father and mother. They've been alive longer than you have, and they have collected knowledge. They've collected wisdom, and they can help you get through this life. And now lesson number one in the essential list is now don't go join the sinners. If you fear God, if you reverence God, if you're wise before God, then don't throw in your lot with those who damage other people to get wealth. And damaging other people to get wealth is something we see all over the place, don't we? So suddenly that lesson, too, kind of has a practical aspect to it, which is be careful about how you conduct your lives, how you conduct your business, Don't be damaging other people just to collect wealth because ultimately that's going to come back to bite you. So that's as far as we got into Proverbs, but it's getting later. I need to let you go. We will pick up right there next week. Are there any questions about what you've heard tonight? Was that lesson effective? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, then good. Finally answered it. (laughs) That's good. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.